We're going to be in Judges chapter 8 this morning. Judges chapter 8. So be turning there. We're going to continue on with the life of Gideon. I actually have stopped titling the uh, messages, you know, Gideon, you know, give it a title, and then Gideon part one, Gideon part two, Gideon part three, because this would, I think, be technically um, Gideon part six. So it just started to feel like those Jason Voorhees movies, you know, I think there's like 12 of them, so I thought, I'll just, I'll just do normal titles. Well, to start with, let me say this. Mankind, we know that mankind has always longed to know the future. There's actually big industries made on people that tell you that they can tell you the future, but rarely do men become wise enough that they could actually handle real knowledge of the future. Thankfully, those who are wiser than us, though, and who have gone before us, and those more knowledgeable than us, they do help us as we walk into future events, and they help us in the way of warnings. Warnings, I want you to think about those for a moment, and what warnings actually are. What are they? What is a warning? Well, a warning can be given by someone who does know something, who does have knowledge of a situation, knowledge that you don't yet possess. A very common example is the example that you might see. I know you've seen this example before, this type of warning as you're driving. You might see this type of warning. It says, warning, road, work ahead. What does that mean? Someone has knowledge that you don't yet have. That someone is a worker who has his truck in the middle of the road, maybe laying asphalt, maybe fixing the road. He knows that you're driving up. You won't know that. So he goes a distance ahead, puts a sign so that you are just driving down that road not knowing otherwise that there'll be trouble there, now you have knowledge of what he now knows. You didn't know it before, but because he put a warning out, you come upon it and you say, oh, I better slow down because there was something ahead of me I didn't know about. Now I know about it, and so I won't get wrecked. I won't smash into the back of this truck that I would have otherwise had there not been a warning there. Another type of warning can be those that come based on probabilities. Those type of warnings are like this. You've seen this before too. Caution, wet floor. Now what type of warning is that? That's one based on probabilities. And we understand probabilities. We know that if you walk normally in your normal stride over this spot that's wet, you're very likely, it is very likely that you'll slip and fall. That's why we call it a probability. Would you fall? Absolutely, 100%. Not necessarily, but it's very probable. That's where we get the word probably from, the word probable. These are two types of warnings that we get in life. Someone has knowledge that you don't have, and they say, hey, be warned about this thing. Or, caution, this is very likely to happen to you. Warnings serve us well. We need warnings. They're very good for us. We're going to find some warnings in Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8 not only serves as a chapter that tells us about the people's and Gideon's downfalls after God gave them a great victory, 
it also serves us in the way of warnings, which I, why I gave the title this morning, The Tragedy That Follows Victory. The Tragedy That Follows Victory. We're going to see that based on Judges chapter 8 and other portions of Scripture that share similarities, uncanny similarities to what happens in Judges chapter 8 here. There are some tragedies that are probable when a great victory of God happens. There are things that happen after a great victory that we need to watch out for. So let's just jump right into it. Um, I'm going to cover this chapter, and I'm going to show you three different warnings, three areas that, you should, uh, that should make you want to slow down and should make you want to be cautious after a victory, after a high moment, after a great victory with God. Um, and these three areas are, are likely to, fall, to cause short-term uh, failures unless you know that they're going to be there. If you know that they are likely ahead of you, you slow down and you look for them and you don't get wrecked. Well, in chapter 8, of course, we've naturally just, just come out of chapter 7 where the Lord has secured a great, and honestly, let's just be honest, it's a mind-blowing victory. Gideon, along with only 300 other people who walked in obedience to the Lord, they saw him work to throw this large enemy into confusion and cause them to be defeated, cause their downfall. We know from chapter 8 that that victory was 300 to 120,000 men who fell at that battle. 120,000 Midianites and Amalekites fell. That's why I say this is a mind-blowing and miraculous victory. What a huge defeat. What mighty works of the Lord just happened in chapter 7, right? With God only using 300 men to begin the battle. Then, we read in the end of that chapter, other Israelites were encouraged by Gideon's obedience, and they run to help as well, which is where we pick up in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is, what, is this that, what is this that you've done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest at Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Point number one is this. Point number one, after a great victory, is this. Look at this. The men of Ephraim became jealous for their own glory. It's a huge victory that just happened. And this is one of the first downfalls we see here in chapter 8. Men of Ephraim, they became jealous for their own glory. Now, it's interesting because we see here Gideon. We see the proverb played out very well here. A kind word turns away wrath. And that's what happened here. Gideon 
uses two different things. He uses their physical land and he uses their physical exploits to basically calm them down. They're mad that Gideon didn't call him, call them for the original part of the battle. Remember when it was just the 300 and they go down, the men are very confused. They start to kill each other even and then they start to disperse. Then the other Israelites join in and help get some of the people that are trying to cross over the river, which is what Ephraim did. When Ephraim was called, the people of Ephraim, when they were called, they secured this portion of a river, which was a crossing. And as the people started to cross, they said, aha, we got you. And the people that they got were two princes. That's the two princes that were uh, mentioned here, Oreb and Zeb. They, they got them and they killed them. But they were mad. They were mad because they said, hey, why didn't you call us to the initial battle when you guys started this thing? Why didn't you include us? Gideon is able to say something that calms them down. He's basically saying, hey, whoa, whoa, guys of Ephraim, listen, you come from a land, oh, who can grow grapes like you guys can? I mean, your land, so fertile, so beautiful, wow. I mean, just wow. Secondly, look what you guys did. You guys got these two princes. Good for you. Ephraim, everybody, Ephraim. And they say, oh, yeah, well, I, I, I guess we are pretty awesome. And they were subsided. Why? They wanted the praise that was coming along with what the 300 got. The 300 would have naturally been seen as just superheroes because that's what men do. Men want to look at other people and say, Wow, you did that? That's amazing. Where who actually did it? It was actually the Lord. These men were jealous for their own glory. Yes, they did something great, but they wanted something more. Now, what Gideon did wasn't horrible. But as a leader, he should have called out sin where it's found. He needs to address this for what it is. He could have done so much better. He could have taken them so much higher. Instead of focusing on their own physical land and their own physical exploits, he should have pointed them to their God. He should have said, well, I'll tell you why we didn't call you to the initial battle, because God didn't call you to the initial battle. God weaned out one huge group of men from my group. And then he weaned out another huge group and left us with only 300. Trust me, I wanted more. Guess who didn't? God. And so why didn't you get called to the initial battle? God didn't want you there. And you need to understand that God's the boss. I'm not even the boss. So know your place, first of all. Thank you for helping, and you did a great thing here. And you should recognize that God used you in a big way. But you need to understand this. If God doesn't want it, then you don't need it. And God didn't want you there. And let's just rejoice at what he has done, even if he didn't use you to do it. That's what he should have said. He should have taken them much higher and shown them God's the boss. And so this, this is all about his glory, not yours. That's what he should have said. And it's clear from this chapter that the people of Israel are not united. <laughs> uh, they're all of the 12 tribes of Israel, which are the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob, the people whom the Lord called by his name, right? 
They're supposed to be united under their God and led by his word. Instead, they're divided by tribe and led by their own sinful passions. That's where we find them. So instead of looking at Israel as a whole and rejoicing in their united victory that day, and instead of looking at the amazing work the Lord just did, 300 men were able to defeat and rout 120,000. Wow. They could only see a victory in which they weren't getting to get as much praise as they could have. They were getting some praise. They defeated the two princes. They said, we want the praise that the 300 are getting, though. And had we been at the battle, we would be getting that praise, too. We want more praise. We want more glory. And that's what man always wants. Man's thirst for his own praise on account of his own accolades. It's never going to be satisfied. It's not. Man wants his own glory, but we were made to glorify God and not self. We actually find our greatest fulfillment, and we find exactly what we were made for when we point to the glory of another. When we point to God and his greatness, that's where we actually find our highest fulfillment and our greatest satisfaction. When he's changed your heart, that you're happier when God gets glory instead of when you get glory, oh, that's a day to rejoice. The world will tell you, focus on self and you'll be happy. The Bible says, no, focus on God. And that's actually where your happiness, real happiness, will come from. And that's what I found year after year, the longer I walk in the faith. The more I'm focused on God, the more I'm focused on following his ways, the more I'm focused on advancing his kingdom, the more satisfied I am. When we either point to God, the God of glory, or we glory in his work, even if he didn't do it through us. That's what we need to hear this morning. (laughs) When you can be satisfied that God's getting glory, even if he didn't do it through you, oh, you need to know that the Lord's done a work in you. You're in a very wonderful place. And pray that God will help you get there because that's when we're most fulfilled, when we're fulfilling what we've been made for. But oh, how mankind revels in the thought of others chanting his name. Mankind revels in the thought of being on stage and people cheering him and saying, wow, I can't believe, look at you. I hope I get to meet him later in person. I hope I get his autograph. I hope I get a selfie with him. That's what we revel in. Think about it. We all think about, we all think about, now what if I become a famous singer one day? What if I am like those people on, what's it called, the X Factor or America's Got Talent? I forget. What if I'm one of those people up on stage and they hit the golden buzzer for me and everybody's cheering for me? Wow, then I'll be really, really happy. Until then, gosh, I'm just a normal person because people aren't telling me how great I am. And what I'm here to tell you is this. When you can be happy 
that through you, people are saying, wow, how great God is. And you're like, yes, amen, he's great. Whew, what a blessed state you'll be in. That's why it's so easy for us to, to see others receiving praise and be jealous that we're not also getting that. Which is what was going on here with Ephraim. Because I promise you, I promise you, after the 300 came up out of that valley and not one of them was lost, but all these dead bodies of the Midianites and the Amalekites are there, I promise you that people are looking at them thinking, who are you guys? Wow, 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 wow. There's an example of something like this happening in the New Testament too, something similar. A great victory just happened in the book of Acts. What victory was that? The victory was the Spirit had come to permanently indwell Jesus' followers. The apostles preached with boldness, and the Spirit of the Lord moved in man's hearts to save 3,000 souls on one day, and it burst the church era of which we're still in to this day. The day of Pentecost in the book of Acts was the birthday of the church, and it was a mighty victory. Huge mountaintop experience. And then things like this start to follow that. Look at Acts 4, Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, um, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now the fact that they're pointing out Barnabas is doing this, it must have meant that the plot that he sold was substantial. And the money that he got from it and laid at the apostles' feet was considerable. Let's just assume somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 in our own money. I mean, imagine, imagine, wow, word would have got around. Now, Barnabas, we know because there's, there's nothing that seems to suggest us in the text at all. We know he did not make a spectacle of this and he did not try to get his own praise from this. However, word would spread. Word would spread. Did you hear what Barnabas did? Barnabas sold this land, gave $100,000 to the church. Wow. Let's, let's go Barnabas. Wow. Just like the 300 in the valley didn't do it for their own praise, but it was just natural that they were getting praise. Mountaintop experience. Huge victory, right? What happens after that? There's others that say, hey, what about, I want to get some, I want to get some praise like Barnabas over there is getting. So what do a couple contrive in their hearts to do? Look at Acts 5, 1 through 6. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with the wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why have Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. Interesting that he says that there, because right before that he says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then here he says, why'd you lie to God? The Holy Spirit is God. Next. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Young men arose, wrapped him up, carried out, buried him. So, Here's a similar situation, like the men of Ephraim. They're seeing someone get glory. And Ananias says, hey, I can, I can do that. Not only that, I can keep a little of it back for myself. So I get the best of both worlds. Get some money for me and some praise for doing something so sacrificial and so out of just the pure motives of my heart. Yeah, extremely pure motives. The Lord sees right through it, though, and struck him dead. Why do I bring this up? Beware. Beware, church. Warning. Warning sign. When God's doing something in someone else's life or someone else's ministry, beware. You will be tempted to say, why didn't that happen to me? I want some of that too. I want some of that as well. Why wasn't I included? Our church has been doing that for years. Why didn't our church get popular like, like their church did? I could have written that book. I know that stuff too. Why is he getting famous? I want some of that. Why didn't you include me? Why wasn't I in there? Instead of saying, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus God's using that church to draw souls to himself. Praise Jesus God's using that man to write that book and bring souls to himself. You know, when I read the book Radical, really everything in it was thoughts that I've been thinking for a long time that should be out there and should be said. And thank the Lord, David Platt put it on paper and made it accessible. And I was just like, praise God for this book because people are hearing what a lot of us have been thinking for a long time and what needs to be said to the American church. Praise Jesus. And David Platt made a lot of money from that. David Platt gave a lot of that money away. David Platt's church grew. David Platt became the president of the IMB. All that. David Platt, David Platt, David Platt. I was very happy for him. I was very thankful. It'd be very tempting, though, to say, I knew all this stuff. I could have written that. Why didn't I get famous? I've been preaching, I've been preaching that stuff for years. Why didn't I get recognized for that? I want some of that glory. See that? Do you recognize that? That's a warning. You need to watch out for that, church. I promise you, after a victory, instead of doing what the Bible says, rejoicing with those who rejoice, the Bible tells us to do that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. The men of Ephraim should have been rejoicing that God was getting glory and God was fulfilling his purpose. Instead of whining about how they weren't included as much as some other people were. So they'd also have their moment in the spotlight. Beware of jealousy after a victory. Beware of jealousy after a victory. Instead, rejoice with those who God chose to use to get that victory. Rejoice in what God's doing to build his kingdom. Even if he didn't use 
you. Let's look at verses 4 through 21 now. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him. See, not one of them died during all that. He still had the 300 with him. Exhausted, yet pursuing. See, not everyone died in the valley. There were still 15,000 more who were running for their lives of all that number. Verse 5. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Remember the people that died earlier, those two men that died earlier by the people of Ephraim? They were called princes of Midian. Now these are the kings of Midian. Those would have been the sons. These are the dads. Okay? Let's see how the people respond. In verse 6, And the officials of Sukkoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him uh, as the men of Sukkoth had answered him. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace... I will break down this tower. Apparently they had a tower in their town that sort of the, t- the town was maybe centered around or known for. And he said, that thing that you guys are so proud of, when I come back, it's coming down because you didn't help me. Whew, calm down, Gideon. All right, what's going on here in these verses? Well, the people of the two towns, they say, you're asking for help. Are the hands of those two men with you? Meaning... Like, are they, are they, are they handcuffed? Are you, are you dragging them in, in procession? Like, they're saying, we're looking at the odds here, Gideon. We're looking at the odds. We don't think the odds are in your favor. I see 300 men who are exhausted and tired and who've already gone through battle, and there are still 15,000 of them, and we just don't think the odds are in your favor. You'll probably lose, and then we'll be the ones who helped you fight against those kings of Midian, and then they'll come back and take out their vengeance on us for trying to aid those who went to lead them into their downfall. So they're going to hear about that, and they're going to come back and kill us. So, no, don't think we're going to help you with any food. Now, these people were actually descendants of the people of Israel. These people... Uh, from a town in my studies uh, were descended from the people of Gad. They also didn't send anyone to help the other judges fight either. So these people have always been sort of hands-off, it seems, though they are descendants of the people of Israel. They are connected. But the people of towns put their concern for their own safety above their faith in what God was doing. Are you seeing that here? They're saying... Yeah, we don't want to help you, because then we help you, and then you lose, and they're going to hear that we helped you, and then they're going to come and wipe us out. So not, not feeling it, not really feeling it, which was tragic too, because even just the law that's given to the people of Israel has large portions of it given to commands about hospitality, even to help strangers and foreigners passing through the land. 
There's a law that says when you're reaping your field, when you're bringing in the harvest, don't even harvest the very edges. Leave those for strangers and aliens who are passing through that they can just take what they want from unharvested portions. Not to mention the laws that are given to help orphans and widows. They're still following us today. So just general hospitality should have been in play. But they said, you know, the risk-reward ratio here is not, we're not feeling that. We feel like investing into you won't pay dividends. It'll actually lead to loss, loss of our lives. So no, go on your way. The people of the town put the concern of their safety above their faith in God. They played the safe game instead of the faith game. They should have put faith in what God was doing. Sure, the ones that God called, but they didn't. They had their safety in mind instead of faith in mind. We can fall into this trap too. Is following God safe as the world defines safe? Not really. Not really. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia ever by C.S. Lewis, you know that the most popular of those works is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You might recall that the Pevensey children find their way into Narnia. And they actually meet up with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Yes, real talking beavers in the land of Narnia. And they're meeting in the house with the beavers. And the children learn about Aslan. Aslan is the king of all the woods, all of Narnia. He's the mighty king. And then they learn that he's not a man. He's a lion. And little Lucy says, then... He isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Do you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. So the faith game isn't always the safe game. And those who are truly drawn by the Lord Jesus know that, yes, like Peter said, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point, I'm longing to see him. We know that Jesus Christ, a lion of the tribe of Judah, is a fierce, fierce and glorious man. He is fierce when it comes to his enemies, but so compassionate and loving when it comes to those he loves and those who love him. And we're longing to see him as well. Though you know, just as I know, when you see his face in glory, it will be both beautiful, terrifying, lovely. Uh, I, I just don't have the words. My reactions in heaven. I know there's no tears in heaven, but I just think I'm going to cry when I see him. But I can't. And apparently I can't, but I will, but I won't. <laughs> The path of faith isn't always the path that's safe. You need to know that. The path of faith isn't always the path that's safe, but it's good. And the people here should have recognized those that God were using and helped them. Help them in the work of God. But they said, we have our safety in mind instead, so not making any sacrifices. 
It's not always going to be safe as the world describes safety when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually says, take up your cross and follow me. The cross, as you know, was an instrument of torture and death. Safe for your soul. Oh, your soul is safe in Jesus. And that's the only part that really matters. But ask our brothers and sisters of old who were martyred, beheaded, burned, drowned, torn in pieces. It's not always safe following our Lord Jesus. But oh, he's good. And he's worth following none the less. In verse 7, we see from Gideon two things. I want you to look at verse 7. This is Judges chapter 8. So Gideon said, well then, this is when he was refused by the first group. Well then, the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand. I will, I'm sorry, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns in the wilderness and with briars. Basically it says, (laughs) two things Gideon's got here. Number one, he has right belief in God. Notice he didn't say, he didn't say, if God gives me these kings, he says when. He knows God's going to do this. He has faith that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. So praise God, he's got faith. He's got right belief in God, but wrong behavior towards man. Gideon has right belief in God, but wrong behavior towards man. When I come back, I'm going to torture you. I'm going to rip your flesh with briars. See you soon. Okay, that's not good, is it? Not good. We can praise Gideon for his faith. That's not how you treat people who disagree with you, Gideon. Okay, that's just not how you treat people who don't help you. I don't care how powerful you are. You don't get to torture people. It's wrong, Gideon. It's wrong. This leads to his downfall. Then also, look at this. In verse 18, he captures the kings. And it turns out he wants to question them. Uh, He says, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Now, where it says in verse 18 here, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? I mean, it's like, where are they? But they're dead. What do you mean? Where are the men that you killed? Um, The King James words it this way. What manner of men were they whom you slew at Tabor? The NIV words it this way. What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? So the idea here is more like, what did they look like? Which is why the king said, they were as you are. They all resembled a son of a king. It goes out, it turns out that Gideon says, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive... I would not kill you. So then he looks at his oldest son there, who's still a young boy. Uh, He says, rise, kill these men. And then the oldest boy, who's still just a boy, says, I'm afraid to do that. And so then the king says, hey, why don't you do it if you're such a man? And then he cuts the heads off of the kings. Why am I bringing that up? Gideon becomes more concerned about getting revenge on those who killed his brothers at this point. It's not so much about God's agenda anymore. Now he's like, I want revenge. You killed my brothers. And then he says this, if you hadn't killed my brothers, I would have kept you alive. Now, is he just bluffing? Or is he just, I don't know. 
but let's at least take him at his word. He says, you know what? I'm telling you something right now. If you hadn't killed my brothers, I'd have left you alive. Well, had you done that, Gideon, you'd have been going against God's commands. You would have been falling into the trap that the people under Joshua fell into when God told all of them, purge the land, push everybody out. And they didn't, and it came back to bite them, didn't it? Gideon is more concerned at this point about his own agenda than God's agenda. Gideon is tempted to place his agenda above God's after this great victory. So number one, right belief in God, wrong behavior towards man. Number two, tempted to place his agenda above God's. These things are temptations after a great victory as well. Let me show you another example of this from the New Testament. This happened in the New Testament also. One of the highest moments of Jesus' ministry one of the greatest victories, I guess, that you can call, besides the resurrection, and was the moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was literally a high moment because it was up on a mountain as well. This is when the Lord Jesus, his face becomes bright, shining like the sun. His clothes become white, whiter than anyone on earth could ever bleach them, we're told. Bright, brilliant. Beside him appears Moses, and Elijah, this is an amazing moment. We start to see a little bit of heaven's glory reflecting off Jesus, coming off Jesus, coming from Jesus. And who's there with him but Peter, and James, and John? They get to see this. They get to experience this. They get to be a part of this. This will never happen again in their lifetimes. What a victory. What an amazing thing to see, to encounter Moses, Elijah, Jesus shining in glory, still veiled, but shining brightly. And then in that same chapter, just a few paragraphs later, we get this. In Luke chapter 9, after that high moment. And remember, we're talking about Gideon being tempted to place his agenda above God's. Because that's, that's our point number two, is that Gideon becomes zealous for his own glory. Remember Ephraim? They were jealous for their own glory. Gideon, he's now zealous for his own glory. He wants to be honored. How dare you not help me? I'm going to come back and torture you. You kings, you know what? I would have kept you alive had you not killed my brothers, but you killed my brothers, my brothers, and so now I'm going to kill you because you killed my brothers. This is now about my glory. You didn't help me, you're going to pay for that. You killed my brothers, you're going to pay for that. Now it's all about Gideon's glory, isn't it? And so, we're going to see that in Luke 9, there's also two men who just came down from a huge victory that start to take things personal. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Luke 9, 51 through 56. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was toward Jerusalem. Kind of a similar situation. Going somewhere, want provisions from the people, but don't get the provisions from the people. Kind of a similar situation. Now, when it says in verse 54, when the, the I'm, I'm sorry, 53, but when the, when the people, hmm, 
But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Why would that be a big deal? Why would they say, we're not going to help you because you're going to Jerusalem? It's like a lot of people go to Jerusalem. These are Samaritans. You might recall from John chapter 4, when Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well, one of the things she brought up was, our father said to us, Jesus, you person that here at the well, our father said to us that here on this mountain is the right place to worship, but you Jews worship in Jerusalem. You say that's the right place to worship. So that's why they said, we're not going to help you. You're going to Jerusalem to worship. You're not recognizing here as the proper place to worship. So no, we're not going to help you. This is the only right place to worship. You guys think it's there. There's a division here. Not helping you. That's what's going on here. 54. And when his disciples, James and John, who were just on the Mount of Transfiguration, a few paragraphs before this, saw the glory of Jesus Christ and Moses and Elijah, okay? They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Something similar to what's going on with Gideon. Oh, you're refusing to help me? Then I'm going to torture you with briars. I'm going to whip you with briars and make your flesh bleed and smile. These guys are like, oh, you're not going to help us, eh? Lord, shall we consume them for you? Right after a mountaintop experience. Right belief in God. Wrong behavior toward man. This can come to you too, okay? After God uses you in a great victory or chooses to use, um, chooses to use you personally in some big way, it's very possible that your zeal for God can be mixed with zeal for your own honor. Uh, Gideon took their lack of faith in what God can do as a personal attack. His pride got in the way. He was thinking in the flesh, and he started acting in the flesh. Our thoughts lead to our actions. If you find yourself ever thinking something like, don't you know who I am? Like me, for example. I could, I, I could, I, I'm the pastor. I could play that card, couldn't I? Don't you know who I am? I'm the pastor. I'm the one God uses in this place. <laughs> not, not for long <laughs> with that attitude. Not for long. Pride comes before a fall. I'm the, I'm the teacher of the Bible class. I'm the deacon. I'm the whatever. I'm the one who God used to do this thing or that thing. If you find yourself getting offended when people reject God as if they're also rejecting you and that makes you want to retaliate against them, beware of your heart condition. Beware of your heart condition we can start to mix zeal for God, which is good, with zeal for my own pride as a person of God. We can do that. And we have to be so, so careful we don't fall into that. Now, it's, it's often true that people will reject you because you do represent God. That's just so common, okay? Let me tell you. Let me tell you. I've had, I had someone even just recently say to me, you don't know anything. You're a pastor. All you know about is God. 
Okay, I'm just going to let that one just float out there. <laughs> so it's, it's often true that people will reject you because you're a God follower. But if I was to then take that personally and burn with anger against that person and want that person's downfall, that would be wrong. Do I, of course, want that person to learn some sense? Of course. Absolutely. And Lord willing, that person will learn some sense if God ever gets a hold of that heart. But if I claim to have right belief in God but wrong behavior toward men, I've fallen into this trap. I'm not far from acting foolishly and selfishly and childishly as Gideon did. This is extremely childish on Gideon's part. Oh yeah? Oh yeah? You're not going to give me what I want? Well then, well then I'm going to hurt you. That's so, I mean, that's elementary. I mean, people, little kids act that way. All the time. And adults act that way too. I was actually shocked when I started growing up. I was shocked at how childishly some adults acted. I mean, I was like, I thought, I thought when you grow up, you, you stop acting like a, a kid. And I found, no, there's actually a lot of adults that act very childishly. And I don't want anyone to be able to say that about people at my church, about God's people here. Let's not have that be true about us. Please don't be among that number. Don't seek man's downfall just because they don't agree with you on every point. Let's, let's review these points because they need to be good warnings for us. And they'll also lead into our third point, which I won't cover this Sermon, I've split this into two parts. Yeah, there's actually a third point. Just this morning, I thought, I need to break this into two sermons. Some of you were thinking, thank goodness. Here's, here's the three points. So, number one, after a great victory, the men of Ephraim became jealous for their own glory. What about me? Why didn't I get more recognition here? Secondly, Gideon became zealous for his own glory it became about his agenda, his name, his family. And then thirdly, we're going to see next week, as this ties into another topic, the people become religious for the wrong glory. Unfortunately, we're not done with Gideon's downfalls in this chapter. But let this be a warning to all of us what to expect after God's done a great thing in our life Church, these are the probabilities. These are probable, as we've seen both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Let's pray. Father, I pray, of course, that you would keep our hearts from pride, from foolishness, from self, and help us to instead be focused on our Lord Jesus Christ and his glory and find our purpose and find the greatest fulfillment of our heart as we point to him, someone so much greater than us, so much more humble, beautiful, mighty, wise, compassionate, glorious. We will never match that, nor should we. We only point to that one who is all those things and more. As we wait for your coming, Lord Jesus pray it in your name. Amen.